0: forever Moments go Time runs out And then it hits you With the pain Things are great
1: This is the Gods to Ghost Volleyball Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bemke. Our interview today features part one with South Mission Beach native, Alan Siegel. Alan grew up in the area in San Diego, is a teenager from the 1950s on, and continues to live and play there to this day. As a result, he was able to Interact and mingle with many of the local surfing legends as well as the established pros in the area when it comes to volleyball, including Bob Mendoza, Jack Hen, Chester and Stevie Goss, the infamous Nate Parrish, and George Stepanoff. Later, Allen competed collegiately at the club level at San Diego City College as well as San Diego State University and then later at San Francisco State University as well. He also competed at the USVBA level for the Olympic Club in the San Francisco area. With that being said, let's get started with Alan Siegel, Part 1. Speaking with Alan Siegel today from San Diego, Mission Beach area. Alan, thanks for joining us for the uh, Gods to Ghost Volleyball podcast today. I appreciate it. Well, hey be uh, <laughs> on the podcast
0: and, and you know I, I have to throw in one little quick disclaimer uh, I don't for a minute think of myself as in the same level of achievement as some of the, the real legends of old school volleyball that you've interviewed in, in your good interviews so I, I don't think that I'm the equivalent to Ronnie Lang or Butch May or Larry Rundle but uh I did play against all those guys, and I played with some of them, and, and I was I was there on the scene of uh, the early days and old school, so I hope I can add some insights to
1: the interview. Yeah, absolutely, you sure can, and uh, this will be fun considering you were there and uh, can give a, a unique perspective on the uh, the San Diego area, which is something that we um, haven't had as of yet, so you're the perfect guy to do it. And plus, you, you partied with Nate Parrish. I mean, what more do we need? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, the sad thing is, is so many
0: of them are gone. You know, that you know, these were great athletes. You think they would have uh, lived longer, but uh, you know, I guess uh, they had hard lives aside from their uh, their volleyball and athletic skills.
1: Yeah, yeah, in Parrish's case, the uh, the old saying, the candle that burns twice as bright burns twice as fast. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Yep. So, yeah, let's start at the beginning here, Alan. Um, you grew up in the San Diego area in the 50s and 60s when uh, all the, the surf culture and everything else was going on. So, um, tell us about what it was like growing up during that time period with... Uh, you know, just the culture and the lifestyle, uh, as a, as a kid in, in San Diego.
0: Yeah, it was, it was pretty ideal. I mean, if, uh, if you had to, uh, pick a, a place to grow up in, uh, you couldn't go wrong in South Mission Beach. It was a small <laughs> community and everybody knew everybody that lived there and hung out there. And, uh, I was, went to Mission Beach Elementary School, and then I went a little bit further north to Pacific Beach Junior High School, and then I graduated from La Jolla High School. But when I was in middle school at Pacific Beach Junior High, I started surfing, as did many of my friends from South Mission Beach. And the guys that we surfed with little did we know that they would become surfing legends you know one was uh, mike henson who was a year older than me and we both went to pacific beach junior high but you know i'd see him around the beach all the time i knew him and mike was the co-star in bruce brown's great movie the endless summer he was the blonde-headed kid oh yeah and- Wow. Yeah, he became, became one of the best surfers in the world, you know, after that movie. So uh, we were all friends with him. Another one is a, a surfing legend that we still see. He still surfs. He's almost 80, Skip Fry. And he's kind of famous as a shaper. I mean, his, his surfboards now, if he makes you a custom surfboard, it's worth three or four thousand dollars. So, uh, a little, you know, he had no idea that Skip was going to end up who he is, and we knew him because one of our best friends, this guy Billy Maguire, his sister was dating Skip when we were all kids, and so uh, we got to know Skip, and we got to know uh, Larry Gordon and Floyd Smith from Gordon and Smith Surfboards. Wow. They, founders of that company you know they employed a lot of the famous shapers and surfers so anyway we were we were a part of the early days of the surfing culture in southern California and similar to the the beach volleyball culture at that time different beaches had different guys that were the stars of the beach you know like uh in uh, Laguna there were guys, and in uh, Santa Barbara there was guys at Rincon that were the best surfers there. And uh, so it was very, there, there was a lot of similarities between the volleyball culture and the surfing culture. And so my friends and I, our, our, a normal day for us would be, we would surf in the morning, and then during the middle of the afternoon we'd hang out on beach, And then we'd go surfing again in the evening if the wind had died down enough to go out. And while we are in that downtime, we discovered the beach volleyball culture in in South Mission Beach. And where we hung out was about 100 yards from the only volleyball court in South Mission Beach. And that's where the stars of the I like to call it the South Mission Tribe, uh, <laughs> played every day. And that's where they were. And every beach, I mean, every beach, there was a, well, let me step aside really quickly. There was a circuit of beach volleyball tournaments. Uh, Santa Barbara had an open, uh, State Beach had an open, uh, Sereno had one, Laguna, Corona, and San Diego that all these players at each of these tribes, at each of these beaches, would compete against in the summertime. They would travel to each tournament and play. So San Diego, the Mission Beach Open, was usually the first open on the schedule in the summer, so it was, uh, it was really a spectacle to see that. And the first open tournament that my friends and I saw was in 61, and we were all, we couldn't believe it. It, In fact, it reminded me of, I used to watch these movies, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table in the the 50s, and it was like a festival like that, when the jousters all came together, and they all brought their entourages of (laughs) uh, friends and fans and good-looking girls and groupies, and... uh, you know, we we had never seen anything like that in South Michigan. The only region. thing
1: missing was their coat of arms, but... Uh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and actually, the coat of arms was their reputation. You know, in those days, the players, they, you know, they didn't play for money, and they really, they played for two things, for reputation and status. That was the most important thing. And secondly, was a trophy. You got a trophy if you won a tournament or you placed in a tournament. But to, you got tremendous status in the beach culture if you were a AAA-rated volleyball player. Sure. And in the early 60s, there was maybe only about 40 or 50 of them in the whole world. You know, I mean, that was the, the center of the world of beach volleyball was Southern California. So... Of the, of the San Diego beach culture uh, and tribe of volleyball players, there was maybe seven or eight or nine guys that were AAA rated in, in 1961 and 1962. And uh, the best of the group, not necessarily from playing abilities, but the star of the group was Nate Parrish, who we've talked about before. And Nate was pretty amazing he was a a tremendous athlete he was a high jumper in high school and he was only six foot tall but he had a great vertical leap it had to be at least 40 inches off the sand and he had a very fast arm swing he could uh he could hit a ball straight down but the beauty of his game was he was a finesse player and He, you know, when he could go up and hit, you know, he'd get a perfect set and he could hit it straight down, he would dink the ball or he would shoot it to the corner or cut it or he actually invented some shots. He invented a shot called the Cobra, which is having your hand open and your fingers really tight together and shooting the ball off the ends of your fingertips. And he could hit the Cobra short or long and you wouldn't get called a throw if you, you if you did it with one hand and tried to shoot it you know, off your fingers but not off the tip, then you'd get called a throw or a carry. But Nate invented the Cobra, invented the double Cobra, he was the first guy to dig a ball with what was called the alligator, which you held your hands like an alligator's mouth open by your waist and you could control the ball somehow that way. I, I never could do it, but yeah. could do it. Me
1: neither <laughs> yeah. I was always fascinated by those guys that could do that and then later Lang and, and Mangus that could dig the ball you know like that or overhand like, like as if they were just playing pepper it just I don't know it must be an innate skill or something
0: <laughs> Yeah yeah. I mean Lang developed. He, he could do the covert he did that and, and Selznick did it even one better he would do it with his hands like it was a pass it was pretty amazing how he dug balls he everything he did was amazing but but Nate more than being a a great volleyball player and and being triple A rated he was a wannabe movie star a wannabe celebrity or a wannabe actor And, and I don't know why he never had the courage to go up to LA and get a job in the film industry but he used the volleyball court as his stage and he wanted he was more a performing artist than anything and uh Whenever he played in a tournament, people would want to watch him. He had a whole group of fans. Even all the San Diego players liked watching him sure. because he would he would engage the crowd in the games, and uh, you know he would make comments to the people that were watching. He was, he was almost like a, a Don Rickles in the sense, if you know <laughs> who he was, he would uh-huh. he would say things.
1: Yeah, he had that sarcastic sense of humor that would get him canceled today, unfortunately, but boy, was he funny. I've watched totally. his stuff on Carson or when he'd meet up with people. He was uh, the king of, uh, king of zingers.
0: Yeah, I mean, he would be in the middle of a game and some girl, if, if she wasn't attractive, would walk by. And he would say things to her, you know, like, oh, what are you doing here at the beach? You shouldn't be wearing a, a bathing suit like that. <laughs> and and it would be horrible stuff, but people would laugh. I mean, they thought it was funny. And he did, too. So, But he, he was notorious for the pranks he did. And each beach had a guy like Nate. Uh, Laguna had a guy named Clyde Hyatt, and he and Nate were good friends. And Bobby Garcia was kind of that way, in Santa Barbara and each, each beach clique had a guy kind of like Nate, but Nate was the king of them all, and uh, everybody would want to try to top what he did, or he would try to top what he heard somebody else did at the party, and he, he did crazy things. He drove a, an old Cadillac, Cadillac into the water one time at the beach and abandoned it, and uh, he... <laughs> Dressed up as a mummy and got in a wheelchair and had a guy push him down to Belmont Park, which is a amusement <laughs> center on the boardwalk. And then see a group of
1: people, and he'd fall out of the chair and be laying on the ground saying, "Help me, help me!" <laughs> he was like jackass before jackass. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's a good one. That's yeah, that's a good comparison, but. But he didn't do things that would really hurt himself, like on Jackass. But <laughs> yeah, but, but he did crazy, just funny crazy pranks crazy like things. that. So, oh, man. So Nate was, was pretty unique. And uh, then there was, in, in the group was uh, the Goss Brothers, and they were both AAA rated, and Chester was a pugilist i mean he was i i described him once in an article i wrote as rocky in volleyball shorts because (laughs) he would he would get drunk and he would get fights and you know in those days if you got in a fight and you were getting beat you just said i don't want to fight anymore and the guy would stop you know I, i I thought, nowadays, man, when people get in fights, the winner wants to kill the other guy, you know? It's yeah,
1: really I, I can't stand that kind of stuff, but yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really changed, I mean, because the fighting was kind of a thing, and every and the same thing at, at most beaches, they had a guy in their group, we had a guy, and we actually had two guys in our group, the guys I hung out with that they thought to go out on a Friday or Saturday night, they'd try to go to a party and get in a fight with somebody, you know. So it was a whole different time, a simpler time, uh, and not as dangerous a time as now. A fight just meant you got in a wrestling or a punching match, and then you quit when one guy gave up, you know. But mm-hmm.
1: And you all had a beer or went your separate ways, and order was restored.
0: Exactly, yeah, exactly. So... But Chester was—he was a great player. He—he—he he, uh, he was one of the hardest hitters I've ever seen. And if we get into a part of talking about who the best—who uh, I thought was the hardest hitters—I would include him in that. Uh, I thought he would pop a ball when he hit it. The sound was so loud, and uh, he was—he would dig craters in the sand. I mean, he and when he and Bergman teamed up for a couple of tournaments in I think '63.
1: Uh, man, everybody wanted to watch them play, you know, because they both could hit the ball so hard, but... uh, There were some bombs going off, huh?
0: (laughs) He was one of the stars. His brother, Stevie, was just the opposite. Stevie was a real introvert, but a tremendous player, a very skilled player, and uh, Stevie was... He had the nickname The Ghost" because he was... He was so quiet, you'd be sitting on the seawall by yourself, and uh, within one minute, you'd look to your left, and he'd be sitting right next to you, and you didn't even know it, you know I mean? That was how he worked, and he was he was kind of the silent assassin on the volleyball court, too. He was very good that way. And uh, from the Goss brothers, let's say, oh, George off uh, a great guy. I mean, he was the most likable guy in the whole crew. Uh, and he was the easiest guy to get to know and he was a great strategist on the volleyball court. He uh, he was he was a great control player. I mean he
1: he had ball control. I'm sorry, that's on my other phone. I'll put it in the other room. That's all right. I don't know why it's going off. Wait. <laughs> but uh, Stephenoff
0: was also one of the AAA players from the San Diego group. Oh, of course, Jack Hen. Jack came kind of a year later to the group, because he was still in high school in 60. Well, I guess he graduated in 60, and then uh, he kind of became a member of the group in 61. And Jack was the best player from San Diego. I mean, he was one of the best players in the country. In fact, Sports Illustrated in 1963 did a little article on him, called him the the best all-around volleyball player in the country. And he could, he could do everything, he could hit with either hand, he could had uh, a great serve. In fact, if anybody had created a jump serve or even thought to do a jump serve in those days, he would have had a great jump serve because he, he had a good vertical leap and he, he uh, could really hit the ball hard on a serve or from back of the court. So Jack was, uh, and he was kind of a mentor to me. I mean, I really liked Jack a lot, and he he was very good to me. I mean, he would uh, he would play with me when I needed a partner, and uh, and he never he never lived up to his potential. Which uh, you know, where were like Von Hagen and Lang and those guys would win a, a lot of tournaments when they had the right partner, Jack never played with anybody that was his equal. I mean, if he if he had played with a Ronnie Lang or if he played with a Von Hagen, he would have had that same kind of winning record as all those other people, but he always played with guys that were more his friends than great players, and it was a little frustrating to a lot of us fans of his in San Diego that He didn't win a lot of tournaments when we when we felt he should have just based on his skill level. So let's see; those are the mainstays. Oh wait, wait! Oh no, I can't forget! I can't forget Bob Mendoza, and I the only I over uh, the
1: line, Mendoza. (laughs)
0: Yeah, because I we still play with Bob he still looks like he Sunday. could pick, pick you up by the throat his <laughs> average ages are about 70 and, and Bob is in his 80s now and he still can play volleyball it's pretty amazing and Bob I think once I think Al Skates uh, described him as the greatest
1: athlete all around athlete he's ever known you know? he did yeah I remember uh, him uh, mentioning that when I was lucky enough to interview him and yeah, that Mendoza, man, he was he was put to, well put together. And I heard, uh, what, he played, you know all the sports, rugby, over the line, volleyball, what else? I heard he was, yeah, plus no, he a great was, coach. In, when, when he was in high school, he was all state
0: in three sports, in football, basketball, and baseball. And then when he went to San Diego State, he was a great rugby player on their rugby team and then he got into volleyball and he was a AAA volleyball player and he and skates I think took second at the Manhattan Beach Open one year maybe 60 or 61 and just just missed out on getting their names on the pier and then he became a high school football coach and he's now in the, the Breitbart Hall of Fame in San Diego they have a sports hall of fame in Balboa Park and he's there because the high school team that he coached—they won the championship seven years in a row when he was the coach. So <laughs> he, hes a pretty special athlete, and he's—he's a great guy, and uh, and he—he's very quiet about his his fame. You know, I mean, he—he he is even today. He doesn't he's not anxious to talk about it as a lot of guys are. You know, so. right.
1: And plus, yeah, and then he's got that. Uh that um magnum pi good looks going on and that beautiful wife cordelia and yeah and yet he's so humble like i always like making funny jokes on facebook about you know how you know mendoza's like chuck norris you know (laughs) (laughs) and he just laughs like but you know you're good you you don't have to say a word your actions speak for you
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. He's uh, and he's he's really a delight to play with. On, you know, we we play on uh, every Sunday. We've been doing it about for fifteen years, and it's the same group of people almost. Uh, and the average age is somewhere in the mid seventies of all of us. And uh, Bob is he's the oldest male player. The oldest woman player is uh, eighty seven. And i i suspect she's the oldest woman beach volleyball player still playing in the country i can't imagine any other women
1: playing at 87
0: and and she does she doesn't move too great but any ball that comes to her she can bump it she can pass it you know and and she can get her serves over so it's pretty interesting uh,
1: isn't gene uh is it gene Reddy uh froning or froning another one of the uh locals oh, that you yeah. play Jean with down there
0: Jean's too our commissioner we call her and How she nice. uh she organizes the group and uh, she and her her husband uh otis put on a cocktail party after every sunday's game in their patio which is kind of a delight and uh and then we've got uh, my wife plays. She's been playing all her all her life, and she's in her seventies. And uh, Jeannie Lenhart plays, and she's a, was a terrific women's player. She's got a room full of trophies. And uh, let's see. Oh, I could go through everybody, but I don't know if you if we have the time for that. I'll come back to that. But I I think our group is really unique because i don't know if there's any other group i I remember you sent me a video of mangus playing with some guys and they were maybe the oldest one was 69 but uh, in our group you know the oldest player is 87 mendoza's next and i'm third at 77 and then most of the women are in their 70s so i don't think there's anybody that equals our group in age and we're still competitive you know we just played last night and uh the games
1: get pretty competitive, so it's it's kind of interesting. How far do you have to walk from your house <laughs> to get to those courts? <laughs> that's, that's the best part. That's the
0: best part. It's uh, it's maybe a block away on the on the sand, you know. Unless people and, they
1: say, "Hey, Alan, I gotta go use your bathroom," and then you and Elfie are cleaning up sand in the house
0: <laughs> for the <yeah>. next week. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually. Jean's house is Jean Fronding's place is in between the, the courts and our house, so they, they would go there. You know, and, <laughs> How
1: convenient! <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh, you got to sign up. Volleyball players, clean up after yourself. Your mother doesn't live here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably
0: should. That might. That might.
1: Uh, yeah, I well, I get a okay. kick out of that crew. That's that's pretty neat. I remember uh, when I had the. Pleasure of interviewing uh, George Stepanoff. He told a a classic story about playing against Chester Goss. uh, during practice one week, and in uh, Chester unloaded on one, and it hit him in the face, and he, he was uh, seeing double for a while. And um, in hindsight, now he goes, he gave me a concussion, but I was t- too dumb to know any better that I had one at the time. So that that uh, makes sense. Two great people. Poor George too. I love. Uh, he's such a nice man, and uh, you know, and of course, he gets tattooed right in the in the melon. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, George George was a really nice man, and he, uh, you know, he, he his strategy, what made him so good in volleyball, because he didn't, didn't have the physical skills, he couldn't jump as high as some guys, and he didn't hit as hard as some guys, but he never made a mistake, and he would always analyze the other team in the warm-ups if he didn't know them in a tournament and figure out where their weakness was, and then he would take advantage of that weakness in a match, which is, you know, what you should do in any sporting event. But I never thought about this till later in life, when he was retired, because he was was really a big shot in the fire department. He made it to the top. I think he was the Commodore or Commander or whatever it's called in the fire department. But when he retired, he and I used to talk talk about stocks and investments. He was a phenomenal day trader he he studied uh, the stock market and he knew which ones were going to go up and which ones weren't and uh, he gave me some wonderful tips in the stock market you know but Mm -hmm. naturally he got into those stocks a lot earlier than i did but i still made a couple of bucks on them so i i really admired him for that and i thought you know that fits his he he was that way in volleyball and he was that way in the stock market he knew he knew what to do and when to do it So that was pretty
1: impressive Yeah, yeah he was. It was a sad day when he Moved on to the volleyball court in the sky But I'm glad he went out on a good note So to speak Because he would just finish that walk In Liberty Station Where he would like count the squirrels all the time I think one time he told me the record That he had counted was like 123 But uh, he sure did oh, a God. lot For that sport <laughs> That's for sure
0: Oh, gosh, yeah, I didn't know that he, uh, yeah, it was his celebration of life, there must have been, I don't know, 250, 300 people there It was really, you know, he was really well liked because he had a lot of friends from volleyball, and he had a lot of friends from uh, from the fire department, sure. and then, yeah, so he he was well liked, George, and, and we do miss him, you know, he's just such a good guy. So, let me talk about a couple of things in that era that, that helped define that era, and uh, which is the early 60s, and I'll say until 64, because 64 after the Olympics and they, the players came back from the Olympics and they realized that uh, you know they changed the rules, that, that because they were doing it in the Olympics, they agreed that it was okay to do on the beach to block over the net that players could block over the net. And that was a huge change. And then they came back from the Olympics saying, hey, we don't have to use our hands to pass the ball anymore. All the European guys bump the ball, you know, and there's no throws called on them. Prior to that, most of the games in, in the open tournaments and the day-to-day games on the beach when you're playing against people, the games were decided by how many throws you were in the game. I mean, a lot of points were scored on throws, and there was unbelievable arguments in the games about whether it was a throw or not a throw, and if you didn't have a rep there, then it was really, you know, some guys would stomp off the court and not even finish the game if they you know got in an argument. And these were all good players. I mean, AAA players would do that type of thing. They'd get in arguments. Uh, and there were certain guys that were a lot more argumentative than other guys. And uh, and one of the worst things I always thought, and they, they actually still do it today, is the le- the loser in a match, in a tournament, would have to referee the next match on, the, on that court that he lost on. So you get the loser coming out of the court. And sometimes he'd be calling... You know the game against the team that had just beat him, so it was really kind of crazy rules. But blocking over the net uh, on the beach really affected all the, the smaller players in the game, like me. I mean, I was I was in trouble when they <laughs> when that rule came in, and it was just about the time that I had moved up or moving to San Francisco and switching to grass and indoors rather than beach. So it helped me in that sense, but. If you were a under six foot player and, uh, and you're playing against a good team that had a guy that could block over the net, boy, you were in trouble, because all you could do was either shoot over his head or try to cut it to the side, and if, if, his, if his other partner was any good, they'd get you every time.
1: So that was a big rule change that affected everybody. Yeah, that uh that was a big deal I know for to get adjusted to for a lot of folks there. So, yeah, there's been a lot of them over the over the years, but that at that, that time period was probably the biggest those ones that you mentioned, huh?
0: Yeah, it was huge, I mean, and because the great players before the the bump became popularized right after the Olympics in 64, the great players were the guys with the best hands and Selznick had phenomenal hands in fact he was kind of the the standard setter for anybody that you know when you'd argue about what a throw was you would define it by how he passed the ball or set the ball and Ronnie Lang was a a, had great hands and Jack Hamm had great hands and Rundle had great hands Butch May was a great passer you know I mean so there was that defined a lot of the really legend players because they didn't get points called on them on throws. And and if you were a referee like me, if you just lost a match and then you had to rep Selznick's game or you had to rep Von Hagen's game, man, I, I wouldn't dare call a throw on those guys even if it uh, spun like crazy or you know, made the loudest sound you could possibly make uh, because they they were the guys that knew what a throw was I didn't know, you know, half the time I, it had to come off clean, it didn't need to spin, and it didn't need to make any noise And then it wasn't a throw, but uh, you know, they, they were very intimidating because they were so good to the reps that had to try to, you know call their game.
1: Good stuff now um before we move on to a couple other things here uh i wanted to touch on one last thing about nate parish when uh i interviewed george he told that epic classic story about the uh party that i think was in maybe corona del mar where uh, nate attended and all the volleyball players were there and uh clyde hyatt was there and then um you as a young whippersnapper maybe in your teens got to bartend at yeah, like it <laughs> <laughs> so this story for those who haven't heard it you can listen to george's interview um which we have on the podcast so um here's further uh <laughs> Proof that it did actually happen, and boy, was it good! So we'll hear it from uh, Alan's perspective now. <laughs> that must, did it scar you for life, or go, wow, I'm, I got go, well, no, a good, this is a no, fun it was, time?
0: I, mean, it was, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, I went to party because I went to La Jolla High School, and La Jolla was a, you know, a lot of surfers and a lot of beach people, and kind of radical kids. I mean, even then, people, kids in high school were smoking weed, so some of the parties got kind of wild then, and even the parties at the beach, but I never thought that a bunch of great athletes you know, got crazy like this, and that, that was kind of an eye-opener to me, and uh, I was there with my partner in the tournament, we played in the tournament, Buzzy Gibbs, and a friend of ours who drove up from San Diego, Donnie McMath, who was, who was kind of, he was a couple years older than us, and he was kind of a crazy guy, And so we were tending the bar. They had a bar in the kind of the living room. It was a two-bedroom apartment, and they had a bar there, and then they had like a little stage where the TV was where guys would get up and do, guys or girls would get up and either sing or do kind of improv. And then the kitchen was off to our right, and Nate Parrish, his his favorite uh, comedian was Jonathan Winters and I don't know if you know who he is but he's on YouTube a lot you mm-hmm. can see him but he was a big time in those days and Nate could do a, a Jonathan Winters impersonation that was great and so before everybody got really drunk you know he did his Jonathan Winters thing and and then things just started to escalate as people started drinking more and more <laughs> and uh, my, our friend Donnie who was the main bartender standing behind the bar, he got kind of crazy because, uh, and Donnie's passed away now, so I, I shouldn't be saying this, but he would, a guy would come and give him a beer cup to refill. And if the guy wasn't looking, he would uh, urinate in the cup and then <laughs> fill it with the rest of it with beer and give it back to the guy. And what. <laughs> One of the, couple of the guys he did it to were really well-known surfers, and I don't want to mention their names, but (laughs) (laughs) they didn't have a clue, they were walking around drinking it, and he was cracking up, and the other people that knew what he was doing were cracking up. But what got really wild, and at one part we left, but we saw the beginnings of it, was uh, in the kitchen, Nate had discovered some olive oil or, or cooking oil or whatever it was, and he poured it all over the floor <laughs> and started, like, kind of skating and dancing around in it, and then some, some girl came in and started doing that with him, and a couple of other guys, well, Chester, I think, got involved in that, too, and then, that, then they started to take some of their clothes off and they got the gal to take some of her clothes off and then they started wrestling and that was going on in there. And while that was going on, somebody got upset about something, I don't know what it was, and he started throwing furniture out the window in the living room into the alley below. It was a second story apartment. And so our friend Dominique grabbed me and Buzzy and he said, look, we gotta get out of here. You know, the cops are gonna be coming. And so he he actually saved our asses because luckily we got out of there and uh, I just heard of it. You know, everybody told me about what happened afterwards, but the cops did come and, uh, you know, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but a few people got busted. And one of them from the San Diego crowd was this guy, Ron who who had just gotten to the party just when the cops got there, he was totally sober, and they grabbed him, and busted him, and <laughs> put him in jail that night. <laughs> so, and Ron was kind of a famous guy, because he was the guy that had invented over the line. Oh. Which was, yeah, he was the guy that first came up with the game, and they, the, he was the guy that paced off how many paces to the line, and how wide the field should be, and. Uh, He was a pretty famous guy as far as over the line goes, so, and the poor guy walked in there and got busted by the police. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I heard, uh, I think, yeah, between that, um, the olive oil or cooking oil and the salad dressing and, you know, whatever else they found in the fridge. Then uh, I mean they threw they threw a couch out the window and it landed on somebody's por- Porsche that was
0: below. Yes. It was just yeah, like- uh, well first it was first a lamp and then the end, little end table and then the thing that was being used as the stage in the living room the TV they didn't throw and then a chair went out and when they were. That's when we left, when the sofa was halfway in and halfway out of the window. We thought, man, this is dangerous. Let's get out of here. Yeah, hard
1: to... uh ever compete with that one and oh yeah I think one other thing I remember George mentioning is that someone said hey the cops are on their way here or the cops are here in the one window that wasn't broken yet instead of opening it to look out to see if the cops are there Nate Parrish put his head through the glass and looked and he goes no nobody's here <laughs> And I was just like I couldn't believe what this guy would do he had a a death wish with some of this crazy uh Behavior, man, uh, unbelievable.
0: Yeah, no, it was also it was all so people would talk about it the next day, you know, or the days after that, you know. It was also there would be a great story about you, and I mean, it doesn't sound as as radical as like today, where if you, if they have a party, uh, somebody will get killed, or they'll have a drive-by shooting, or something like that. But this was really radical stuff in the early '60s. I mean, remember this is it was part of a, there was, the early 60s was still button down uh, society. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you go to work and you, you get married and you have kids and you go by the rules and you don't get in trouble like this. And these were adults, you know, guys in their 20s and 30s, and, and they are doing crazy stuff like this. And the, the, the end of that story that we heard, I, you know, was that when law police was in jail, they wanted to bail him out and they needed to raise like sixty dollars or eighty dollars i can't it wasn't a lot of money at least today but then i guess it was a lot and they raised the money and then they went and spent it on beer instead of <laughs> alien law <laughs> La police you know? you see. <laughs> sitting so, in the tank that's, jail, you know? <laughs>
1: And then they're doing cheers to Lopoli
0: He's sitting there with his head against
1: a concrete wall (laughs) (laughs) It was was really a crazy night, but everybody that was there
0: remembers it clearly because it was it was such a crazy scene And you knew you knew early on that something was gonna get out of hand (laughs) And it really did but luckily our friend Donnie was smart enough to drag us out of there We would have it would still be there. And yeah. I don't know, who the, it, you know, the, the guy at Corona that was somehow connected, every, every beach had kind of like a patriarch and uh, like at Corona it was the Wetzel brothers and this guy Bill Wetzel who was really a great guy and he was a good volleyball player. He was a AAA rated player and he was somehow connected to the apartment and uh, that I thought was really bad. I, You know, the, anybody would, disgrace it like that or disgrace him because he was a really good guy so I don't really know you know what his connection was I never found out but uh, he was a good guy because one when I played in my first Corona Open Buzzy and I played and uh, this is a pretty good story we we drew you know in the tournaments if you were unrated and at that time we were unrated but you could get into an open tournament as long as you signed up in time and you know, somebody knew who you were and that you knew how to play, you could get into an open tournament. And so we got into the Corona tournament and we drew the number one seed for our first match was O'Hara and Bright. And uh, they blew through us, but, but I felt pretty good because the sand was very hard at Corona. It was my favorite beach. And I, I actually got to hit a few balls and did well. But we still lost easily to O'Hara and Bright. And then we thought, well, okay, we're in the loser's bracket. Maybe we can win a game or two. So at the same time O'Hara and Bright were beating us, these two young studs from Santa Monica, Dugan and Taylor, knocked off Selznick and Lang and put them in the loser's bracket. So who do we draw for our second game in the loser's bracket, or our first game in the loser's bracket, actually, but our second
1: game in the tournament? Is Selznick and Lang. So, we're so you to get play to play, play four of the greatest American players history. in history. <laughs>
0: and then, then we're playing Selznick and Lang, 218 18 year olds, you know, with a, without a rating or anything. And man, they were they were great. I mean, Lang was, he didn't even talk to us. I mean, during the war, <laughs> he didn't even warm up. He just kind of looked at us and said, Are you guys ready? And we said, Yeah. And it's so, a. And so they they like it was kind of windy, and they, they both had this overhead or overhand spin serve, and it was moving all over the place. And I must have got called for like six throws in an eleven point game, and Buzzy for maybe the same amount. They they just blew through us, and then uh, Lang just walked off. He didn't even shake hands or anything. He walked off, <laughs> and Seltsik <laughs> came over. He was he was actually pretty nice. He said. I'm going to give you a tip and I go, "Okay, what is it?" And He says, "When you're getting a spin serve coming at you," he said, "you got to move up a couple of feet <laughs> where you where you receive the ball." He said cuz if you get the ball at you below your chest, you can't possibly pass it without throwing it, you know, with your hand. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, okay, you do. You know, I wish you had told me that, you know, when I started <laughs> so, so He laughed and he was he was very nice. I mean, he, he uh, he said, you know, don't give up, you guys. You guys have potential and keep playing and, uh, you know, you're young.
1: <laughs> so, how so What I, a neat story to have that experience. To play both
0: those guys in, uh, in one tournament, <laughs> your first two games.
1: Yeah, I recall that story about Taylor and Dugan upsetting them in the first round like that. The two uh, Santa Monica um, uh, that are from the beach club there, um, young bucks that came up through there and, threw him for a loop in the first round so Lang was probably scathing and, re- and wanted to 8-0 you next to get to get, get to the tournament you guys unfortunately yeah no, he, wanted
0: to, he wanted to hurry up get in the losers bracket win their way you know and I don't know who won the tournament I don't even remember because we left early that was the Saturday of, the, of that party the Saturday afternoon of that party so I don't know actually who won the tournament uh whether Selznick and Lang came all the way back through the loser's bracket. I'm sure they placed in in probably the top three. Or O'Hara and Bright won it, but in those in like 62 and 63 and even 61, O'Hara and Bright pretty much won a lot of the tournaments. I think they won even more than Selznick and Lang did. They were always either rated one or two or seated one or two in all the open tournaments. I know at Manhattan O'Hara and Bright won like three or four years in a row in the early '60s. So they were they were a dominant team. Uh, I mean, O'Hara had this roundhouse spike, and I I'd, I'd witnessed it indoors. We played against them indoors when he was on the Hollywood Stars, and it was like undiggable I mean, indoors you could get it, but you know, when it's just in two man, man, it was a great great hit. And he could do it on a on a back set, that was the amazing thing. I mean, not a back from the setter setting backwards, but on a set that's like in the middle of the court, he'd jump up and do this roundhouse, and uh, you know, just kind of stood there with our mouth open as it uh, <laughs> hit in front of us. But uh, yeah, he was great. He was a great player. It's, it's, that's what's kind of shocking to me that both those guys are dead. I mean, they were, they were in such great shape, you know. They were really physical specimens, and uh, neither one of them are alive now so it's, it's really weird they wouldn't have been that old they'd probably been in their
1: 80s you know so yeah yeah it's interesting how that that works yeah three of the all-time greats are uh, o'hara bright and selznick are are uh no longer with us they're up there in the sky playing in uh Tournament with Parish and Stepanoff, and Stepanoff's the tournament director. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Well,
0: well, Selznick had a pretty uh, not hard life, but a kind of a a, you know he was a busy guy. I mean, I'd say you know because he was a dancer and he would go out in the evenings, and he uh, he would not he would uh, you know he wasn't a physical conditioned guy, but O'Hara was very serious about uh, staying in good shape and and. Bright was in great shape because he was a, a good surfer and a really tremendous paddler. He was a, really would win all these long-distance paddleboard races. And it's just kind of shocking that, you know, being an, And I guess Lang was, wasn't was as big a partier either. I don't know much about how where he was in his after hours, but Selznick was a real partier, so you kind of maybe expected it from him, but... Uh, the other guys, I thought they'd
1: live a, well. Lang's still alive, so they, yeah, they Lang's did live doing well. And yeah, from what I understand, Gene liked to have a, a fun time socially, but he never part. He didn't drink, and he never used drugs. He, but you know, he he uh, uh, had that par, car uh, parking business, and uh yeah. you know, at like the Windjammer and some of these other establishments where he'd get a lot of those guys from the beach jobs to work at night so they could play, but he would you know he liked to have fun and hang out socially afterwards but no drugs or alcohol for for mr selznick
0: i didn't know that yeah yeah i never hung out you know hung out with him socially so i didn't know that's interesting yeah yeah i didn't know that either i
1: uh but yeah i've talked to a handful of people and including his son and he's like yeah Dad liked to have fun, but he, it was good, clean fun. <laughs> he, his high was uh, kicking everyone's butt on the court, having fun like the Pied Piper, and uh, and uh, dancing the night away. I heard Lang was a pretty good dancer, too. I know he would bowl once in a while with guys like Gene Pfluger. Um, and, uh, you know, Lang was a stockbroker, I think, so he, you know, kind of... You know, kept to himself with with things he wanted to kick everyone's butt on the court he didn't want to be their friend so he, <laughs> he didn't even tell people where he lived <laughs> so it was interesting the dynamics and uh, how different all the personalities were and I think that's you know sounds like what made it so so interesting and, and amazing back then
0: oh so entertaining yeah I mean they were all every one of the, the guys that were the top players were were really interesting characters and interesting personalities, you know. So, uh, and and they reflected it on the court. I mean, Lang was one of the fiercest competitors I've ever seen in any sport. You know, I mean, he was he was a tunnel vision, one track mind. He wanted to win and and get the game over with. You know, and he did in most cases. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs>
1: oh. Yeah, that's yeah, so neat I, that you got the point. I can't
0: imagine that one match I I hear about, and I didn't see it, uh, the one where they played,
1: when he and Von Hagen played Rundel and Bergman and the Manhattan Open. Yeah, that was yeah, in 68, where it was like between the winner's finals and then the finals. It was literally seven hours of volleyball. Seven uh, hours, yeah. In, uh, yeah. And then yeah. they finished in the dark under the car lights where, you know, Literally, Lang could not see the ball any longer. In the last seven or eight points, were serves that dropped on the court without even. You joke, they could only hear it, they couldn't see it because Lang was a little Time older balls, and his eyes were as good.
0: <laughs>
1: I think all they had to do was serve underhand. It was that bad where you literally... I, I didn't appreciate this before, but now that I'm 48 and I used to think I was invincible and now I, I can't even read a damn menu when I go out for dinner without like shining the light of my phone or taking a picture, now I understand and appreciate what Lang said about uh, or what happens to your your eyes when you get older. I'm sure some of it's genetics, too, but uh, it's a lot harder to see.
0: Yeah, and it's not going to get any better, Scott. <laughs> That's
1: a, you're at the best it's going to be right now. Jeez, so oh, I'm going to go jump off the, the bridge.
0: That's
1: it. <laughs> All right. You're my life coach here, Regal Siegel. So uh, I'm an ordinary guy trying to live an extraordinary life.
0: Yeah, I was pretty lucky. I mean, I was in the early days of the surfing culture and, and knew a lot of the guys and witnessed a lot of the guys. And in the early days of the volleyball culture, beach culture. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I, I went to San Francisco state and, uh, all of a sudden this whole anti-war movement and the counterculture, uh, Developed around me, and San Francisco State was kind of in the middle of it all. Uh, and uh, boy, I, I got to experience all of that in my uh, lifetime, from its early roots to its, uh, you know, fulfillment. We we lived very close to Haight Ashbury Street, which was the heart of the counterculture and the Summer of Love and the hippies, and uh, it was an amazing time. I mean. Uh, and almost equal to the beach culture or at least equal to the beach culture of southern california mm-hmm. in those days yeah so it was it was a real trip oh i, I will well i'll tell you a great story that uh, is a kind of a, a really a reflection of what nate was like and a reflection of steno and uh and a naivete of me and my partner buzzy gibbs at that time we were 17. i had just graduated from high school and uh, the first Open I ever played in, Buzzy and I played together, was the Mission Beach Open. And uh, the, first, the first round we drew uh, a team that I thought we'd have a chance against because they were both guys were our size. And it was uh, Dave Heiser and his partner Kaplan. I don't know, I can't remember what Kaplan's first name was. And they were from Santa Monica. And I thought, okay, you know, we got a chance against these guys, and they they were seated. They were seated like fifth or, or seventh. I can't remember. And I thought, geez, you know, they're just little guys. You know, they're like five eight and five nine. But uh, boy, they taught us a lesson in uh, in <laughs> you could be under six foot and still be great players and hit <laughs> the ball straight down. And but we did we did okay against them. We you know we didn't get blown out. We uh, we were able to compete, and we felt pretty good about ourselves. And so Heiser and Kaplan put us in the loser's bracket, and then we got a bye because uh, somebody had to forfeit. And so we didn't play again until the very last match of the the day, of the tournament on Saturday. And for us to make the second day of our first tournament would have been just fabulous you know so we would be really excited about it absolutely so the, yeah so the, so the match was going to be one game to 15 in the losers bracket and it was played on a court that was where we started our own court which was about 100 yards south of the main court and i don't know why they set it up there but they decided to have it on this, that court and so it was kind of like our home court because that's where we learned to play a lot on and uh so, what happened was all the San Diego people that were left, all the players, and it was it was probably around five thirty six o'clock mm-hmm. that were all left. We kind of lined up on the seawall, the boardwalk on the east side of the court, and all the l a people were on the west side of the court, and it was a pretty big crowd, the biggest crowd I've ever played in front of or done anything in front of uh, well, other than high school sports, but we drew the team we had to play was steno brunicardi who i'd heard of and heard some of the stories about him and a guy named kent dorwin who i knew nothing about and but later on got to be good friends with kent who was a great guy and and was a member of the olympic club and but at that time he had just been i think he was rookie of the year at the nationals Because he played for Stockton, which was the winner of the Nationals uh, in 62, I think it was. And so Kent had never played on the sand before. This was his first sand tournament. And Steno was probably in his late 30s. He was really one of the older players there. And... uh, But I'd heard all the things about him, that he was this great intimidator. And so on one side, you had all the L.A. people rooting for Steno and Kent. And on the other side, you had all the San Diego people rooting for us. And Steno started right away. In the warm-ups, Buzzy and I would would set each other to practice a hit or something. And he'd say, well, you guys know that's a throw. In fact, every ball you guys pass is going to be a throw. And every ball you guys said is a throw, you know. And we didn't know, you know, we didn't know how to react to that. We didn't know whether what he was doing. And uh, luckily, I mean, he was serious. Luckily, the ref was a San Diego guy and uh, didn't feel the same as he did about what's a throw or what's not a throw. But uh, we started the game and they weren't that good I mean Kent was having trouble I mean Kent's a good player he has a great serve and indoors he's a tremendous player but you know he was having trouble adjusting to the sand and Steno uh, I I don't know I wasn't impressed with him at that point I don't know what his rating was but uh, you know he, he he wasn't didn't have great ball control I'll put it that way I'll put it politely and so we had the lead most of the game. We, In fact, we got to 14 before they did, and we couldn't close them out. Uh, so the score ended up 15 all, 15 all, and somebody called a timeout. I don't know, I guess it might have been Steno. And so we're standing there and Nate's waving at me. He's sitting on the seawall, Nate Parrish. So I go over there and Parrish says, he says, look, you gotta, you gotta shake up Steno. I mean, he's really a hothead. You gotta say something
1: <laughs> to him. You gotta sting get, the bull. <laughs> get
0: him upset. Yeah. You gotta say something that'll get him upset. And then you guys are going to get to the next two points. And so I go, well, what do you suggest? And he, and, and I'm just, these are just the words. Now I'm not sure these are the exact words that we said, but he said to me, uh, something like, well, say something about his girlfriend because he wasn't married yet. I don't think he'd been married yet to, uh, Jean and, uh, you know, say something about his girlfriend being a better player than he is, you know? And, uh, I, th- I think that'll set him off. Nate said, and you know, all these guys are kind of sniggering and I didn't know what was going on. So we go back and the time, and Steno's talking to the rep about throws still. And <laughs> so I go up to the net and I go, uh, Hey, uh, you know, I hear, is, is it true that you got a girlfriend that's better than you? Maybe she should be playing. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. He uh, he turned around, stopped in the middle of whatever he was saying to the guy, and I thought I saw smoke come out of his ears, I swear. And, uh, and he started to take a step toward me, and then, he, then he, he figured it out, and he turned around, grabbed the ball, went back, and he played the, he was playing, let's see, the right side, and I was playing the right side, and it was his serve, and so he walked over to the line, to the left side, so he could serve me down the line, and he served two balls that were great serves, the best serves of the whole match, and they won 17-15, and he walked off, and I never didn't see him again, and so... I go over to Nate and I go, what? What was that all about? The last guy to you should have taken
1: advice from. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: so, so Nate he had the, he had the greatest line of all. He says, "Well, he says, you know, I really wanted you guys to win, and I thought if you if you said the right thing, you know, which you probably did." He would have either knocked you out or thrown a punch at you, and he would have had to forfeit. You guys would have, would have been in the tournament. And he said it seriously, and all these guys are cracking up around us. And I go, oh, man, I, I learned a great lesson on that one.
1: This wraps up part one of our two-part interview with Alan Siegel. Before I let you go, I want to give thanks to the musicians that we utilize for our podcasts. The opening track is from the band Sponge. The song title is Rainin', off the album Rotting Pinata. The closing track is from the band Magna Carta Cartel. The song title is That It's Already Too Late, off the album Good Morning Restrained. Stay tuned for part two with Alan Siegel coming up soon. Thank you.